0: We affirm with our hearts what we just sang with our mouths, our need of you, and your grace to meet us there. So we do pray you would come and meet with us, not that you need our invitation, but that we would welcome the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, teaching our minds, stirring our affections for you. We ask for your help as we open your word, that you would be our teacher and our guide, that you'd instruct us and encourage us with what is true, that we would be shaped and equipped and formed by your word through your spirit this morning. Set our eyes on you. Lift our eyes above the horizon of all that we can see in the temporary that we might gaze upon you, even just a glimpse that you would share with us of your glory and of your kingdom. Speak to us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can have a seat. I've been told that there's a lot of people at 9 o'clock, and I was sent a message just a few minutes ago that if you want to go to 11 o'clock, there's more seats available. We're not kicking you out. We're just letting you know. Um, There's also a few seats up front. You can sit next to Jeff Curtis who's sitting in the front row, and there's a few seats over here. Um, I promise um, I don't bite. Uh, Sometimes I do spit, but I don't bite. Um, He usually doesn't travel that far. Uh, We're glad that you're here. Uh, Sorry, that's a weird introduction. Good morning. Uh, We're continuing Luke's Gospel today. Um, So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to finish chapter 16 today, um, verses 19 through 31, and we have a good deal to cover, even though it's not a lot of verses, so I'm going to try to be uh, uh, helpful and uh, somewhat try to move through it somewhat quickly, but bear with me. Um, uh, chapter 16, uh, starting in verses 19 through uh, 31, if you need a Bible to follow along, there's some folks coming around who can give you one. Um, maybe there's a phrase, maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not, but the phrase is this, waste not. Want not. Familiar with that one? It speaks of being a good steward, right? If you don't waste what you have now, then later when you need a little bit of it, you might have some and not be in want. At least that's the idea of this kind of truism. Now as a kid, you probably didn't think that way. I for sure did not. If my brother or I would get $5 from grandma for a birthday... Or even just some spare change from losing a tooth, which is a strange, strange ritual that we practice, isn't it? We sell our teeth to our parents for money. I mean, excuse me, the tooth fairy. Sorry, if I just ruined that for you, parents. I'm kind of sorry, but I'm kind of not. That's just what it is. Uh, It's just an odd odd, uh, ritual we have, isn't it? That money, whatever it was, when I was a kid, would go into my pocket, and that pocket would go with me down to the corner to the little uh, drugstore, Camden Drug, and it would probably be baseball cards or candy of some sort. Now, their candy aisle was probably pretty average, but to a kid with just a little bit of cash, man, that was cool. It was all sorted by cost, and so you're like, ooh, I could get like one Snickers bar or like a hundred Tootsie Rolls. Right? This is amazing for a kid. Right? And it's probably most often spend every last penny. Now, did I waste those dollars? Probably. It was probably frivolously spent. And our text today contains a parable, the last in this little sequence, to consider one that deals with at least in part the idea of waste. Is there a not just pennies wasted on cheap candy, but a life wasted? This is the last in a series of parables that are kind of all strung together. All these are related to each other, so keep that in mind all the way back from Luke 15. These ones recently uh, deal with the topic of money, how we utilize money, tells us something about what's important to us and what we believe, what we love, what's our greatest hope. We've talked about that the last number of weeks. So I just want us to keep that in mind, that idea of waste, as we read our passage today. So let's read together Luke 16, starting in verse 19. You can follow along in your Bibles. Um, It'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to read it. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime, excuse me, received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word for us today. Now, if you go back all the way to Luke 15, in the parable of the lost son, we read about one son who wastes his father's resources, and the other son, the the older brother, who wastes the, the depth of relationship he could have had with his father. In the parable of the dishonest manager that we looked at, we read about a man who wastes his master's resources. And today we read about a rich man who apparently seems to waste his own. Lives poorly spent. Each one wasting a little bit of what God has given them. And while there is a lot to be learned, even in passages like this about stewardship and money, all of these passages are pointing at something of much greater significance than just money. Let's not miss that, that there's something about stewardship there that we can take and utilize and apply. But, but underneath that is something of far greater significance. These parables and these stories that Jesus is using are, po- are using things like money and possessions to press on the heart of his listeners, And to point to other things that are of greater, and I'm going to argue, eternal significance. You see, temporary things like money and the comforts that money affords us have a tendency to pull our vision and our perspective downward to the here and the now. In some ways, we we can't help it. That's why money and material things and comforts are such challenging topics for us not because they're inherently bad, not saying that, but because they are powerful. We don't have enough. Or, or we come into a situation where we lose the, what we have, and so what, we, what, we, what do we do? We fret, right? Or the flip side is, we have so much that our sense of being intentional about what we have is kind of lowered, and we kind of forget It's the stuff that either causes us often to either fret or forget. And in both extremes, what's happening is our eyes, our perspective is here. It rests here, kind of under the horizon of eternity, just on the the temporal things. We don't look up and over the horizon into what God has planned next, into things that are eternal. Our vision just gets stuck here. To use the language that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes, below the sun, under the sun. We get stuck under the sun. So the question I want to ask, as we read kind of an odd parable, an odd passage like this, is this, are we living with eternity in view? To say it more negatively, are we in, where are we in danger of living wasted lives? But maybe that's a little heavy. Let me just ask it the other way. Are we living with eternity in view. And I think we'll see in this text a little hopeful truth. That God is at work in both our joys and our sorrows so that nothing is wasted as we live with eternity in view. God is at work in our joys and our sorrows so that nothing is wasted with eternity in view. Now, the first part of this parable is a contrast between two men Complete opposites in life and in death. And then the second half of the parable gives a little perspective on what happens next. Is this dialogue between this rich man and Abraham. So, so both in life and in death, this parable is intended to fix our eyes forward on eternity. So I'd like to look at the parable kind of in two parts. Ethics and eschatology. Ethics and eschatology. Ethics, the, the life here, if I can say it that way, and eschatology, the life to come. So that's how we're going to look at the passage today. Here's the first one. I said a couple of weeks ago, when it comes to understanding parables, it helps us to keep in mind that a parable usually has one big idea. And that's true. It has one primary idea. And with that, we should also keep in mind and take note that there are often true things about what Jesus is teaching, about life, that are buried in and kind of clothes, uh, give, give covering, if you will, to the parable itself. We talked a little bit about it last week when we talked about uh, biblical morality that, that God has laid out for us, biblical ethics. So let me just give you a definition of what I mean when I say, Ethics. Biblical ethics. Ethics, I'm quoting here, Ethics is concerned with the way we ought to conduct our lives. Clearly then, it is an integral part of biblical revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, we find principles, precepts, commands, warnings, guidelines, and counsels that are intended to steer our lives toward that which is right, good, and God-honoring. The Apostle Paul tells us that Scripture was given not only to reveal God's way of salvation, but also to train us in righteousness and equip us for every good work. We'll leave that slide up for a moment. The idea here is that God has revealed Himself to us in Scripture, in His Word, so that we might know Him so that he might show us the way to salvation in Jesus, and all throughout his revelation, throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end, we have instructions from God on how we ought to live in light of who he is, so that we might do what is right, good, and God-honoring. That these two things are not in conflict with each other. And here in a passage like ours, Jesus speaks with authority about things that are right and good and things that are not right and not good. And our text today starts with a story of contrast. Here's the contrast we see in these two men. Two men are present in our parable. A rich man and a poor man. And they couldn't be more different. The rich man is described as one who wears purple cloth and fine linen. Now the picture here, purple might not be a real popular color modern days, but in the time of the first century Near East, purple was reserved for like royalty and the ultra-wealthy because to make purple cloth was an expensive and time-consuming process to dye fabric properly. It was reserved for kings. And so if this man put on a purple robe every day, That says something about, one, what it means that he was a rich man, and two, how he saw himself, and three, what he wanted everyone else to also see about him. Every day, this is how he was clothed. And he also wore fine linen. Fine linen refers to the most luxurious Egyptian cotton you can imagine, and it's a nod to his undergarments. So so here's the picture. This man is luxurious from his underwear to his cloak. Like everything about him is of the finest quality and the highest cost. And Luke says he feasted sumptuously every day. Sumptuous is a great word. It means lavish, which is a lot, and ostentatious, which means outward which is another great word. Put those in your, in your lexicon every day, right? Not only did he have epic meals, but it was on display. Everyone knew that this guy was wealthy. So he wore expensive underwear, put on expensive clothes every day, ate large, lavish meals that would require all kinds of servants to prepare and serve and clean up proper slang term from my generation, my late Gen Xers, early millennial friends. This man was living large. I don't know you all young people still use that phrase, but he was living large, okay? You get what I mean? Even if you don't use that phrase? Some of you are nodding like, yeah, someone understands me. Right? That's this rich man. And then we meet another man. In contrast, his name is Lazarus. Now, as an aside... Lazarus, this Lazarus, is the only named person in any of Jesus' parables. It's led some commentators to think maybe Jesus is telling a story that's like a real-life story, not a parable. I think there's lots of indication that tells us it's a parable, but Lazarus' name is important and part of the parable. Here's why. The name Lazarus is a version of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means the one whom God helps. So Lazarus being named here is very important to the parable, which is interesting because he's described as a man who honestly has very little help. He's a broken down man. He's covered in sores. He is hungry, poor, and destitute. The only help he seems to get is from someone who picks him up and lays him down at the gate of the rich man, which is how that phrase tells us he was laid there which is passive someone actually had to bring him there and set him there at the gate and his hope in that was that maybe just maybe some of the rich man's guests coming to feast sumptuously with him might have pity on him on their way in or the way out or as the servants were bringing out the the bags of trash and uneaten food that maybe some from the table that wasn't eaten would fall to him right now, we see pictures like this. We can visualize this idea. Someone so very destitute that you're not even sure how you can help them. And Lazarus' only comfort, outside of maybe a nice, kind person who brought him to the gate, was dogs. Specifically, without being too graphic here, the tongues of dogs. Now, some commentaries kind of treat this as like the final insult. Dogs in the ancient world are not like dogs today. There were no, like, puppy parents, which I would argue that should also still go away. That's another sermon, right? You're not a dog mom or a dog dad, I'm sorry. That's personally, if you've got issues with that, you can email me. My name is Jake. I'm not giving you anyone else's name. That's mine. Jake at RiverCityFargo.org. But in the ancient world, but in the ancient world... Dogs were even like less than that. They weren't members of the family. At best, they were guard dogs. They were kind of despised, maybe useful, but not a whole lot else than that. And so some actually look at this as a a juxtaposition, that there's a kindness of the dogs to Lazarus that even humans wouldn't give. There's actually scientific evidence that says Uh, The saliva in dogs actually has healing properties, so that's weird. We're not going to go there, but there's likely a small kindness, some kind of soothing relief that even the wild dogs from the neighborhood would come and would tend to him. That's kind of the picture we have of this person who's in pretty rough shape, right? It's a sad situation. We see the contrast, right? He's hungry and hurting and alone. Verse 22, Lazarus dies. And we're told that he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The picture here in the parable is that Abraham as the patriarch, the leader of Israel, if you, if you will, in terms of their covenant relationship with God. Abraham is sitting at a large U-shaped table, which would have been common at a party. And Abraham's in the center because it's, it's his party. And right to his side, the seat of the honored guest at the party is Lazarus, this poor, destitute man. He is carried by angels in the parable to sit at Abraham's side as his honored guest at this glorious, heavenly table. Honored at the banquet. Quite the honor for a broken-down nobody, right? Luke continues, the rich man also died and was buried. Note the contrast. The rich man got a proper burial. Lazarus was likely picked up either by someone who knew him or some city official and carted off to where they put dead bodies who had no home, who had no money, which was likely the burn pile outside of the city along with the rest of the garbage. But the rich man died and was buried. But no angels ushering the rich man. Verse 23, And in Hades, Luke describes, Jesus is saying, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So we have this snapshot of the lives of two men, so different in life, different in death, and now we're seeing the contrast beyond their death. The end result of these two lives we have one who in life sat at banquets and ends up in pain and one who lived his life in pain and now ends up at a banquet so what's happening here i want to be careful that we don't draw too simple a conclusion i don't think it's a simple rich equals bad poor equals good That's overly simplistic for what Jesus is trying to do here. And there's lots of other reasons, if we use the Scripture to understand Scripture, how that can't be true. Not the least of which is that we have lots of other examples of those who have material means all throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, who are held up as faithful examples of people who loved the Lord. Here's a couple. There's a man who's known as Joseph of Arimathea. Who it's, it's his family's burial plot, his family's tomb that is offered to the disciples to lay Jesus' body after he's crucified. This man likely had wealth. He was likely part of the council who was a disciple of Jesus and used what he had to, to do what he could to bless Jesus' family and the disciples. Acts tells us of a, of a woman named Lydia who lived in the city of Thyatira who had a successful business selling textiles and uses her household to host and serve the local church to bless the mission of the advancement of the kingdom with all that God has provided for her. Okay, so we have these, those pictures. And on the other side, we'll read in just a couple of weeks the story of ten lepers. lepers who, uh, leprosy at the day, might have encompassed a whole bunch of skin diseases. Ten of them get healed by Jesus. These are people who likely for a lot of their lives have lived destitute and poor or at least outcast away from their families in little communes outside of their city. And of these 10 people who maybe would all be uh, classified as hard cases and poor, if you will, you know, only, only one comes back. So it's not just that simple, wicked and righteous, don't Clearly, always correspond to rich and poor. I just want to be really clear that we don't overly simplify this. There are those who have much who are wicked, and those who have much who are righteous. There are those who have little who are wicked, and those who have little who are righteous. The key from our passage is that the rich man here wasted what God gave him. The problem wasn't necessarily the wealth, the problem was the waste. And not just the consumption of things, it was a heart problem. One commentary says it this way, I found it very helpful. This parable is not intended primarily to emphasize the dire consequences of, of following the abuse of wealth and hard-hearted contempt of the poor, but to declare that men cannot arrange and reconcile to their own satisfaction their profound reverence for God and their love for self gratification. You can't love both things. That's what we're getting at. And what we're seeing is this man clearly loved some things more than God. So, our care or our lack of care for others, in this case, the poor, is not necessarily about how many dollars. Are spent, but is focused more on the posture of the heart. Specifically, the things we do have have implications. The things we do have implications not only for this life, but also for the life to come. It's a heart check. So, this is what I mean when I talk about biblical ethics how we live in this life does matter. It does have implications for this life and in the life to come, and not always in the way that we tend to think, which leads us to the second part of our text. We see this contrast between a rich man and Lazarus, and then they both die, and then a conversation ensues. That's the second part, on eschatology, on what comes next. Eschatology is just a big word that means our understanding or our study of the end. What comes after this life? At the eschaton, the end of all things, or if I can say it this way, at the end of your lowercase e, eschatons, (laughs) the end of your lives, my life, what comes next? And so Jesus paints this picture of what that kind of might look like so that his listeners might be able to, in a sense, get a peek into what's next and hopefully see the connection between the life that they have now and what's to come. Now, quick disclaimer, this passage is not intended to be a full and robust theological treatise on heaven and hell and how it all works, okay? Remember, some of the details in parables are in place to help emphasize the main point of the parable, So we don't build an entire set of detailed doctrine off of parables, okay? Just leaving that for you to take how you want. But we do use what we know about the rest of the Bible to help us understand parables. Here's what I mean. There are some things that are part of this parable that we're like, well, what does that mean? And we'll get into some of that. But here's the big idea that I don't want us to miss in this second half of this parable, that when this life ends, there is an existence to come. If you're going to take something away from this interesting parable, take that away. That when this life ends, there is an existence to come. There are two destinations. One is full of pleasure and peace, and the other is full of punishment and pain. That's a takeaway from this parable. There is a heaven, and there is a hell. And the entrance into both of those destinations, both of those places, the entrance happens before this life ends. And once the threshold from life to death is crossed, there's no crossing then between the two. There's no bridge. There's a chasm that's described. You cross through the door here and you enter into paradise or pain. If there is one takeaway from this half of the parable... It's that, the reality that eternity comes when this life is over. And Jesus makes no excuses for this reality. And his hearers would understand what he's talking about. In many cultures, they have stories and beliefs of the afterlife, what comes next and how one might get there. The Jewish listeners of Jesus here would have understood this surely Abraham would be there to greet them. Surely Abraham would be there to welcome them into their covenant promises. And that's exactly what seems to be happening here to Lazarus. He is ushered into a banquet and seated at the place of honor, but not so for this rich man. And what's interesting is, in the whole parable, Lazarus is named, but he never speaks. And from this point forward, It's essentially a conversation, I would say more of an argument, between this rich man and Abraham. He immediately seeks to to find a solution to his problem. Here's how Jesus describes it. This man is uncomfortably hot, fire and burning, pictures of judgment. He is parched. He is thirsty beyond comprehension. And he's in anguish because of the flames. It's descriptive descriptive language there. And he asks Abraham, calls Abraham father, playing his own privilege card. I'm I'm a faithful uh, Hebrew, Father Abraham. First, have mercy on him, which is interesting because have mercy on me is beggar language. So now the rich man recognizes, at least in part, his problem from banquet to beggar. And then he asks Abraham, would you send Lazarus down with just a drop of water on his finger to touch the tip of my tongue, just to give me just the smallest amount of relief. A couple things stand out about me, or about that to me. One, the picture is one of extreme discomfort. The fact that he's able to speak, I think just speaks to the reality that it's a parable. Even a drop of water to this man is like a fountain of relief, okay? Second, I don't know if anyone else picked up on that. He knows Lazarus's name. Did you catch that when we read it? This poor man sat outside of his gate for who knows how long, never getting any amount of assistance from the rich man's house. Yet he knows who he is. Just hang on to that one and let that make you feel a little uncomfortable. And three, he still sees Lazarus as part of the servant class. Abraham, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus to serve me, please? No apology, no acknowledgments of his own selfishness. In fact, he doubles down. Have him serve me, Father Abraham. And Abraham draws a contrast for the rich man now. In life, he says, you received your good things and Lazarus his bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. It wasn't that the rich man had a good life and so now he had to suffer. This isn't yin and yang. This is not karma. There's no balancing of the force here. The rich man presumed upon his blessings. We talked about this before. The good life... He had, in his mind, meant, God is pleased with me. Look how he is blessing me. The rich man mistook happiness for blessing. Prosperity for God's uh, blessing of him, his, his pleasure in him, for godliness. And second, yes, Lazarus in, is invited to a banquet table, but what does Abraham say that Lazarus received? You see it? Comfort. Not healing, not food, not riches, although he was receiving all those things and more at the right hand of Abraham, but he was being comforted. Now, we don't know any more details about this man named Lazarus. Again, as a parable, the rest of it is pointing to the main idea. But it is, I think, okay for us to infer that for all of his time at the gate, hungry, cold, in pain. He didn't presume that because he was in pain, it must mean that God had forgotten him. He must have had some kind of foundational belief in God's mercy that even in his pain, he trusted in the promise of God. That's why he ended up where he ended up. Further, we might get a little insight into the character of Lazarus. And listen to what Abraham says to the rich man. He says, because of this great chasm that's between here and there, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. We don't know this, but, but we could possibly infer that even maybe perhaps Lazarus was willing to dip his finger in water and bring it to the rich man. But Abraham says, even if he were willing... He can't cross to you. Now, the kind of character being described in Lazarus is one who trusts that God is going to be faithful to fulfill every promise that he's made. That's the kind of character being described in the simplicity of this poor man sitting by a gate. And the contrast and one of the most shocking parts of this parable is that while apparently this poor, destitute, broken man had some picture of an eternal hope, the rich man only sees what's right in front of him. And that doesn't seem to change even as the parable continues. That once he reaches the other side, once he finds himself in torment and torture that even after tasting hell, the picture, the posture, excuse me, of this rich man doesn't seem to change. He still maintains all the way through his self-importance. And if that is not a sobering thing for us to consider about how our hearts might react when pressed, I think it should be. The rich man continues, okay, you can't send Lazarus to me to come and give me some peace, to, to, to give some uh, relief to my pain. Can you at least send him to my father's house to warn my brothers so they don't have to experience this kind of torment? Now, this might be one of the only little slivers we see of, of, of selflessness in this rich man, but even still, he's approaching both Abraham and Lazarus from the position of a higher class. If you won't come to me as my delivery boy, can you at least send him to my brothers as the errand boy? Maybe I'm overreading that, but I—that's the posture I think of this rich man. If you can't come here to serve me, perhaps you can go and serve my brothers. Now, maybe his brothers could use a warning. If they were like him, if they were living lives just like he was living, then yes, there's concern there that they too would miss the boat, that they would overlook the eternal significance of what's going on in their lives, and they could be maybe spared the torment that he was experiencing. And look at what Abraham says to him. They, your brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This Abraham guy is kind of direct. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. These were Hebrew men. They should know the law and the prophets. They should know what God has to say about concern for the poor, about caring for those who have needs in their own community. They should know this, Abraham says. And as one commentary said, this reminded me this week, in all the Semitic languages, Hebrew, Arabic, Aramaic, Aramaic was the common language of the day. Jesus was likely speaking Aramaic when he shared this parable. In all those languages that have been familiar at the place and time, to hear, when Abraham says, let them hear Moses and the prophets, to hear is not just to listen, but to listen and obey. So when you come across that in the scriptures, to hear is to listen and obey. So to hear Moses and the prophets would not just be to know what Moses and the prophets have said, but to obey what Moses and the prophets have said. And so clearly this man, and by extension his brothers, were not living according to God's word. And Abraham says they don't need Lazarus to warn them. They already have Moses and the prophets. And here's where maybe I'm being a little harsh with this rich man, but here's where I think it's warranted. Look at verse 30. His last-ditch effort. No, Father Abraham... You were arguing with the patriarch. How arrogant in that place of torment to be like, no, I still think I'm right. Right? Seems a little bold to try to correct the patriarch of your entire faith, but that's okay. His attitude doesn't change. He's still demanding. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent, the rich man says. Surely, if a dead man shows up, they'll listen. But if the torture of hellfire didn't change the heart of this man, would a miraculous rising from the dead of a poor beggar change the heart of his brothers? Abraham gives his final response, and Jesus closes his parable. If They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, there were instances in the New Testament of people coming back to life from the dead. Jesus raised a young girl who had died back to life. In John, we get the description of Jesus raising his friend, also named Lazarus, no relation, back to life. And when Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead, his family celebrated, Lazarus' family. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they saw it with their own eyes, you know what John tells us? That they sought to kill Jesus because of it. even more. Jesus himself prophesied and then fulfilled that he would die. He would be destroyed and then three days later would rise from the grave. And even those who might see him with their own eyes, some would still not believe. I can't help but read into this passage a little bit of a warning. That even if someone should rise from the dead, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to believe. The rich man and perhaps his brothers were not truly considering the reality, the eternal reality of their lives. They weren't honestly considering the life to come. They didn't have an eternal perspective when it came to how they lived, their ethics, if you will. Or what was going to come on the other side, their eschatology. You could say the rich man wasted his life. Now, we've worked through this parable. How does this parable apply to us? How do we not waste, if I can say it that way, the life that God has given us? How do we live with an eternity in view? Here's three takeaways that we can take with us as we are uh, having lunch this afternoon or discussion in community group. Here's here's three of them. Here's the first. There's the reality of heaven and hell. It's kind of a cold, direct application, but there's a reality given to us here from this passage. We don't have to be afraid of the reality of heaven and hell. Not as a scare tactic, but what's really happening beyond what we can see. That there is indeed life after death. And the road to that life is found in this life. And that once you cross the threshold through death, that eternity is sealed. And the way into that life isn't doing all the right things. It's repentance and faith. What the rich man was lacking in this parable wasn't poverty. It wasn't necessarily even compassion and good works, although he might have been missing those as well. What he was missing ultimately was repentance He was not surrendered to God. His heart was hard. He didn't need any help. Friends, if you find your heart hard to the correction of the Holy Spirit, there's a reminder here in this passage to give up, to surrender, and to repent. Not to scare people, but just straight-up reality. I might live for 40 or 50 more years or 40 or 50 more minutes. I have no idea but I am and you are being invited to walk in repentance and faith as we are walking toward eternity. So for your hearts and for those around you who you love and care about, let's not be shy about heaven and hell and this eternal reality. That's the first thing to, to wrestle with as we pull from the, that we pull from this text. Here's the second thing: that there are some responsibilities we have as Christians. We don't have to shy away from those either. That Jesus is highlighting. We talked about it last week, so I'm not going to make a big deal of it. You can go ahead and listen to last week's sermon if you want. I'm pretty sure it's on the website. But I'll say this, that all the moral and ethical instructions in the Bible are not given to us in order to earn God's favor. We can't work to change our own hearts. Instead, because we have been transformed, we now live as changed people. What was once self-centered is now Christ-centered. And if Christ-centered, then we are free to be generous with our time and our talent and our treasures to serve others. So we can take seriously the prompting of Jesus toward others with compassion and generosity. We can look with compassion on a man like Lazarus and say, God, what have you given to me that I might serve someone else? To hear what God's Word is saying and by hearing... I mean to listen and to obey. It's the second takeaway. And here's the third. That we see in this passage the roots, the beginning of a life well spent. That a life well spent has eternity in view. A life well spent, the roots of it, If I want a life well spent, then it starts with having my eyes fixed on what eternity will be. Here's what I mean. We've talked about it before. In this life, every penny that you have is from God for your joy and for God's glory. And every pain that you endure is also for your joy and God's glory. Both. And if I believe this, then this serves as an anchor or a root that, that will hold fast, that by God's grace will produce in our lives good and lasting spiritual fruit. We've talked about the things God provides as being all His and that we should be stewards of all good, God's good gifts. Right? We've, we've talked about that a little bit already the last couple of weeks. Every joy that we have should roll up in praise to God because he's the ultimate giver of all good gifts, I think that's fairly easy to get our heads around. We'll keep banging that drum and reminding ourselves of that reality, that every time we celebrate something, it's an opportunity for us to praise God for his kindness. That's good. What we don't often talk about is the pain that we endure being used for our joy and God's glory. But I believe the Bible bears this out as well. That every evil we endure, every pain we experience, and every grief that we bear is completely and totally meaningful. And I don't say any of this lightly. A family who four days ago lost everything they owned in a fire. A husband, I know, who last Thursday drove his wife to an outpatient surgical appointment to remove cancer while her parents watched their small children at home. I know another husband who drove his wife to start her third round of chemotherapy treatments this week. I know of a family who has two of their children battling similar but slightly different rare diseases and had to admit them both at the same time in different places. I know another couple who is grieving yet another negative pregnancy test. And that's just from my little circle of people just this week. I don't say this lightly. And typically in our pain, we default to asking why and there's no fault in asking why. I'm not faulting anyone for saying, but why God? The psalmist cries out all the time, how long, O oh Lord? How long? And I think God can handle those whys, so please don't hear me shaming that. Sometimes we get an answer and sometimes we don't. But often we get stuck in the why. We get stuck asking why. And so I want to encourage us, with our eyes set on the horizon, are we enabled to ask the question of what now? Not just asking why. In light of who God is, what has God said? What has God already done? What has He revealed about Himself? What has He promised? In what ways has He already been faithful to me? What has He already said and done? And also asking, What will God do? What promises of His are still intact? What sure hope do I still have in front of me? If I can look down the road with eyes towards eternity, what do I see? In light of who God is, in light of what He's done, in light of what He's promised He will do, now we respond to our circumstances. We respond to our circumstances in light of who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. And the goal in that is to not waste a penny of pleasure that comes from God's hand, and to not waste an ounce of pain. And please hear me, I do not say this coldly or lightly, but this is the, this is the root, the anchor I want to drop here coming out of this parable, that all of life in joy and in pain is totally meaningful and God is at work in all of it for your joy now your joy now might be rich and full and friend praise God with thanksgiving for his goodness if you're feeling joy in some aspect of your life right now let's worship together for that or like Lazarus your joy here might seem really small the beauty is we don't live just here. There is eternal joy on the horizon. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I come back to this passage regularly for this reason. Listen to what Paul says. He says, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, there are many things that will put us at risk of wasting what God has set before us. But we need not lose heart. God is gracious to remind us of who He is and what He has promised in His Word. And God is at work in our joys and in our sorrows so that not one bit of it is wasted. Not one bit of it is wasted. And I pray that we can live that way and see that because our eyes, too, are set forward above the horizon with eternity in view. That makes everything here in joy and sorrow totally meaningful. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess so many things pull our vision downward. And thank you that you're gracious in that you know, we are frame, you know our frame. You know we're just dust. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you are a high priest who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. And yet you are strong. When we are tempted, you overcome temptation. When we are weak, you are strong. When we are faithless, you remain faithful. I do pray for my heart and the hearts of everyone in this room that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit to to shine a light on the places that are holding far too tightly to the temporal. Would you free us to worship you for all the good things you give us and to praise you even in the hard things knowing that you are the strong one. Help us to believe and to say, along with Paul, that even the hard things are light and momentary compared to the glory that's to come. Would you lift our eyes from under the horizon? that we might live with eternal joy in view. And even as we come to the communion table of what, what it took to purchase us from our place of death and slavery to sin to a place of life and hope and peace that we now have all that we have because of Jesus. That this Affliction is only light and momentary because we have secured for us an eternal hope and future in him. Cause our hearts to swell with gratitude and worship as we take the bread and the cup. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.